Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to tell you a story about something that happened in the community next door to the town in which I was last a pastor. And as you listen to this story this morning, I want you to keep in mind the question, what is the role of the church in a divided society? What is the role of the church in a situation like I'm about to tell you? Before I came to St. Paul's, I served at a church called Baser, which is on the outskirts of Kansas City. And a little further west of Baser is a town called Tonganoxie. You can sort of imagine it like I was serving in Gretna and Springfield was down the road. Similar dynamic. The towns were similar, they are similar, but they're not quite the same. Baser is more quickly becoming a suburb. Tonganoxie has a little more country in it still. But a lot of the forces of economic development in that part of the city are the same. Tonganoxie is about 10 miles further from downtown Kansas City, and it has one big advantage to Baser, that is, it has an exit on I-70. Well, about halfway through my ministry in that part of the world, Word started going around that there was a big development project happening on the way for Tonganoxie, an exciting one, 
one that would bring a lot of jobs and such to the region. And it had a special code name like these economic projects often do. And the city council of Tongi had green-lighted uh, the exploration of infrastructure to help support this project. They took the vote in secret, though, in a closed-door city council meeting, because that's how big a deal this project was. Then one day, the governor of Kansas made a surprise announcement that the state had created an incentive package to lure Tyson Foods to build a new chicken processing plant in Kansas. And this plant was going to be located just outside of Tonganoxie. The governor held this big press conference in Topeka, touting all the economic benefits and celebrating what a great thing this was for the state. The governor expected the people to cheer and get excited about the news of this Tyson plant. But the people of Tonganoxie did not cheer. They did not get excited. They rebelled hard. Very quickly, a group of people uh, against the project sprang up and they they claimed as their slogan, no Tyson and Tongi. Catchy, right? No Tyson and Tongi. They had signs, they had t-shirts, they had stickers, they had lots of social media conversation, and they had a lot of momentum. They were worried. They were worried about pollution. What would happen to their groundwater? They were worried about traffic. What was it going to mean for all those semi-trucks? How much noise and hassle would that bring to their community? They were worried about the smell. And chicken processing is stinky. And plus, chicken farms often grow up in the, in the, or spring up in the land around the plant. How would that affect their quality of life? They were worried about who was going to work at the plant. Would it change the flavor of their small town? And they were very careful, the Notaisen and Tongi, they were very careful how they said this, but some of them were very worried about immigrants and brown people who normally work in meat processing, worried about those folks moving to town. So there were some racist concerns, but they also had legitimate concerns about the effects of the new plant. And the issues were complex and lots of conversation needed to happen. But very quickly, the atmosphere in town went from a space for conversation to a knock-down, drag-out fight. Either you were for or you were against. There was no middle ground. And very quickly, the no Tyson and Tongi folks were not content just to rail against Tyson Foods or the governor's office. They started going after the people who had sold contracts, who had contracts to sell their farmland. They went after the city council members who had approved the project preparations in secret. They went after anyone in town who dared to stick up for Tyson. And if you have ever lived in a town of about 5,000 people, you can guess how quickly this became nasty. Now, I had several church members who lived in Tonganoxie, most of whom were quietly interested in the project going forward, or at least exploring it. And they felt outnumbered, and they were worried. So at one particularly tense church count, or church council, city council meeting, uh, I showed up because I wanted to make sure that they knew that there was somebody who cared about them uh, that was there in the crowd. And it was a terrible atmosphere. The crowd was just full of people who showed up angry. They yelled, they accused, they were full of passion, they were full of fight, they heckled, they booed anyone who was brave enough to speak out 
in terms of further exploration of the project. The, the meeting was in this old auditorium that could hold maybe 200 people, but people had brought signs and they brought placards like it was a rally of thousands of people. One of my church members dared to get up and speak in favor of the project. And not only did she get yelled at and booed over, but the police ended up escorting her to her car after the meeting, so worried were they about the vitriol in the room. So that's what was happening in town. In a moment like that, what ought the church do? Where does the gospel of Jesus intersect with a civic conversation like that? What role does the church play in a moment of drama and social division? I mean, the city was in an uproar. No one in Tongi was talking about anything else. So what were the options for a local congregation in a moment like that? I and my congregation at Baser, we stayed silent publicly. All the Baser public officials did actually, because even though the plant would have affected us, it wasn't in our town. It didn't feel like our place. Now there's a United Methodist Church in Tonganoxie as well, and the pastor who was there was very new in town. Like he had been there just a few weeks when the whole thing stirred up. And he told me one day, not long after they moved there, that someone came to the parsonage and knocked on the door, a church member, and said, Pastor, there's a big No Tyson and Tongi rally happening right now down the street. Won't you come with me? And he said, oh, my young children are here at home. I can't leave them. I'm sorry. Thank you. No, thank you. What would, have, what would it have meant for him to go to that rally? What did it mean for him to stay home? We're in week two here of our series, Washed as we're considering together the promises we make as Christians and as United Methodists at the moment of our baptism. Take a moment with me here to remember the question we considered last week. Question number one of the baptismal liturgy. I have it on the screen for us. When we come to the baptismal font, the first question that I ask as pastor is, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? Well, here, week two, we're going to look at the second question in our baptismal liturgy, which is such a powerful statement that people have actually made it into a t-shirt. Now, to be honest, you have to be pretty churchy to want to wear language from the book of worship on around a t-shirt, but some people are that into their baptismal promises, and I say more power to them. So the second question in the baptismal liturgy is, it's up there on the screen, do you accept the freedom and power that God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? If you want the link to the t-shirt, I'll be happy to send it to you. Now, just like with that first question in the baptismal liturgy, I have never had anyone say no when I asked them that question in worship. I've never had anyone say, you know, Pastor Amy, tell me more about exactly what that means. Sounds like a good thing to resist evil, injustice, and oppression. 
But what exactly is the evil, injustice, and oppression that I'm being called to resist? And what's it going to take for me to actually resist it? What am I going to have to do? Is the answer to that obvious to you? I'm afraid it's not obvious to me. I suspect as soon as we start talking about evil, injustice, and oppression, as soon as we start to name instances of it, we're going to find ourselves holding different opinions about how to live out this baptismal promise. Maybe you're saying, come on, Amy, don't make this complicated. It's not that hard. We know what evil, injustice, and oppression is. Well, let's take drugs. Drugs, for instance, those are evil. They wreck lives, no doubt about it. What can be complicated about drugs? Okay, sure. Drugs, they wreak havoc on society. So what should we do about it? If we're going to resist the evil of drugs, what should we do? As Christian people, what policies, what laws should we support? Putting all drug users in jail? Or how about putting all drug users in rehab? How are we going to pay for that? Or if we're going to resist the evil of drugs, we need to decide which drugs should be illegal. Heroin, that's a bad one. Okay, but what about opioids, which are made from the same plant as heroin, but come from a prescription from the doctor? Or what about marijuana? That's legal in South Dakota now. What do we as followers of Jesus need to do about that? All of a sudden, our baptismal promise has landed us squarely in the middle of a complex and contentious social issue. So what do we do? Well, let's look to Jesus, okay? Right, Jesus is going to help us figure out what this baptismal promise means. When Jesus is around, things get simple, right? Maybe, maybe not. Our scripture reading from this morning is a moment when Jesus landed himself in the middle of a bunch of social issues. And what happened? Conflict comes from the book of Luke. And this is actually the first thing that Jesus does as a part of his public ministry. As we read Luke, all the birth stories happen, and then Jesus, a grown man, gets baptized by John in the River Jordan, and then he goes and he's tempted for 40 days in the desert. After the temptation, he comes home. He comes home to Nazareth. And you have a sense, I think, about what it means to come home as an adult, how weird this can be, right? People see you as yourself, but not quite as your grown-up self. Well, Jesus showed up in Nazareth, and there's a buzz already that has begun to spread through Galilee about him. It says that he began to teach in the synagogues in the area and was praised by everyone. Well, while he was home on the Sabbath day, Jesus and presumably his whole family went to the synagogue and he stood up to offer to be the one to read the scripture for that day. There would have been an assigned scripture from the Torah. They divided it up for each week, but Jesus, he didn't want the scripture assigned for the day. So when the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him, you can imagine this like massive papyrus on two rolled up rods, he would have unwound one rod and wound up the other one until he showed the part on the scroll of the scripture that he wanted to read. And what he read was part of the great news that the prophet Isaiah announced to the people of Israel. I'm going to read it to you again. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus said boldly, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It might be so familiar to us that we miss the fact that Jesus is proclaiming he's going to do something about social issues. He says poor people are going to get good news. Prisoners are going to get released. Sick people are going to get cared for and healed. Oppressed people are going to go free. Jesus is talking about economics, about the prison population, about health care, and about social justice. It's amazing how relevant those issues sound to us today. Now, how did the people in the synagogue respond? Did they jump up and say, yes, let's do it. Let's get organized, Jesus. Let's get to work. Not exactly. First, they said, don't we know this kid? Isn't this Joseph's son? We didn't expect this out of him. They seem to be on board with him, though, because they say in the scripture that they were amazed at his gracious words. But before they can say much more, Jesus complicates things because he tells them stories about moments when prophets in ancient Israel helped and healed not the Israelites, but helped and healed outsiders. He reminds them of two moments when Elijah and Elisha helped foreigners rather than the hometown crowd. And then things go off the rails. It turns into a moment like the Tonganoxie City Council meeting. People are enraged and they pull him out of the synagogue, out of town, up to the top of the hill. They intend to throw him off the cliff. Remember, this is just the beginning of his ministry and the crowd is so incensed, they want to end him. Thankfully, he escapes. But after he leaves Nazareth that day, he never, never goes back home. What is it, do you think, the people were so mad about that day? What vision of themselves and their faith did they have that he stomped on so hard? What kind of things do you imagine they were yelling at him as they led him out of town and onto that cliff? What was it that was so provoking in what Jesus said and taught that day? I don't know that there's one particular right answer to that question. I suspect how we answer it would have something to do with how we also answer this question, what's the church to do in the midst of divisive social issues? I assume that you have seen, like I have, that churches today have a wide range of ways they respond to the complex social issues of the day. Some churches are ready to be out in the streets, marching, protesting, lobbying at the legislature, joining up with organizations to make uh, city policy or state law. And th this is an approach that's not exclusive to conservatives or progressives. It's not limited to Democrats or to Republicans. It's not determined by denomination. Churches of all kinds want to be active in public issues. They consider it their duty to be a prophetic voice to share with the world what they think is the will of God. And if we ask them, why do you do this? Why are you out there marching and protesting? They might say something like, 
The prophet Amos said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But there are other churches who never want to be in the limelight of public protests or meetings. They have their focus on the private spiritual lives of people, and they want to avoid political stances at all costs. They want to be a safe harbor for people, and they, they feel like taking a stand or even engaging in political dialogue would compromise their mission to tend and save souls. And if we said, why is that your focus? What, what are you focused on? They might say, you know, faith is about people and individual salvation. And then they might quote to us Jesus when he tells Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. What's flesh is flesh, and what's born of the spirit is spirit. And they say, we focus on the spirit. And then there are some churches that try to play a, a third role, a different kind of role when it comes to social issues. They want to educate. They want to build bridges. They want to engage different perspectives and, and be a place of reconciliation between divided groups. They might say that they're trying to follow the, the counsel of Paul in, the, in Galatians, where he says, in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I would suspect that each of these different kinds of churches would have a different way of understanding what Jesus is pointing to in his sermon at Nazareth, and also a different way to hear our baptismal question for the day about resisting evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. I doubt there's any church out there that's truly homogenous when it comes to the perspectives I just outlined. Even in the synagogue in Nazareth, as some people were trying to throw Jesus off a cliff, I suspect there were some of them that were uncomfortable with what was happening. But I wonder, St. Paul's, what do you think as a whole where do you think we as a congregation are? What is the role of our church in engaging with social issues? As we think about that question together, I want to offer the differences that are among us as we understand the role of the church in the world. But I also want us to have space to hear from and talk to one another about this question. How do we see ourselves? How do we see our congregation living out this baptismal promise about resisting evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? That's why next Sunday evening on the 24th, we're gonna hold this deliberative dialogue. It's a place to talk. It's a place to listen. It's a place to understand and learn. As I've said, we're not going to hold a vote at the end to make some kind of definitive forever statement about St. Paul's. That's not what it's for. It's about having the kind of conversation that we don't often have in church, a conversation about how we see ourselves and what we hope our congregation can do in the midst of a world that's grappling with hard and complicated issues. I really hope you'll come and be a part of the Zoom, even if right now you're not sure what it's all about because your voice is important, and I think you're gonna enjoy the experience. After a few weeks of resistance, the no Tyson and Tongi people, they got their way, and Tyson Foods pulled out of the project. They went to some other state, and they built their new chicken plant there, which is fine. 
I, I really didn't have a stake in the outcome of that fight. What I hated to see, however, was the scars that the whole ordeal left in town. They're still there years later. Neighbors stopped talking to neighbors. Some people felt the need to move out of town. Relationships were forever changed. And the church, through it all, all the churches in Tongamoxie were silent. Maybe that's the way it needed to be. I don't know. Or maybe Jesus could have guided the church through a different response. Because the call of the one who saves us is clear, that we are to resist evil, injustice, and oppression. But the way to do that takes wisdom and conversation and a whole lot of the Holy Spirit. So may God guide us on the road ahead. Amen.